Hello and welcome to our In Conversation series. I'm Andrew Guile, a solicitor and a director here at GM Law and I am with... Uh, I'm Luke Cowles, I'm a solicitor in the Police Actions Department. Now today we're going to have a look at uh, the recent case of Parker and Essex Police. Now Mr Parker is more uh, widely known as um, Mr Barrymore. And there's a, but there's a number of interesting legal issues that, that, that come out from the case, which we're going to have a look at, including what we lawyers call de minimis damages or arguments that damages should be very, very small or minimal or non-existent. Sometimes yeah. there are cases where people succeed with their claim for compensation but are awarded a pound or, or a hundred yeah, pounds. They literally call it nominal damages, yeah. one pound. So we're going to look at this case. We're going to start by looking at the facts of the case, which are very relevant to the issues that uh, then flow from it. And then we'll have a, a little chat around the issues that, um, that, yes. that arise out, out, of, out of those, those matters. Yes. So, uh, Luke, take, take us through the facts. Well, exactly. I mean, the two, the two things we're going to look at effectively afterwards are, one, the idea of reasonable suspicion being transferred between one officer and another. Yep. Uh, and then, as you said, nominal damages and when a person's entitled to more or less. Yeah. So in terms of, to give a brief idea or outline of this, um, I'm not going to go into the details of the actual murder, unfortunately, but in 2001, Mr Lowick is found uh, dead in the swimming pool and we're going to whiz forward to 2006. This is when a reinvestigation is opened uh, and they're looking at Michael Barrymore as well as some of the other people who were there that night and an arrest plan is formulated and... And the rest plan looks at all the different sort of facts, new facts, witnesses they've spoken to, and a decision is made that they're going to arrest uh, three people, one of them being Michael Barrymore. They want to arrest them at the same time to prevent, in their view, collusion, you know, sure. one speaking to the other. And so this reinvestigation, I'm going to look at my notes uh, just as we go, but it's led by Mr. Wilson. He's the senior investigating officer. You've then got a case officer, DC Thomas and the exhibits officer, DC Jenkins, and it's Jenkins that matters here. So they're three people clearly involved in the reinvestigation, got the most knowledge about what's happened. Now the actual arrest uh, plan is formulated by DC Thomas. DC Thomas then briefs DC Jenkins. Uh, so DC Jenkins is fully aware of all the, the, the information, and then the decision to arrest is taken, and DC Jenkins is the one assigned with the responsibility of arresting Michael Barrymore or Michael Parker. Now, um, essentially they go off to arrest him and there's a, a surveillance team already watching Michael Barrymore. DC Jenkins gets stuck in traffic. DC Jenkins, bearing in mind, the only one with sufficient knowledge out of everyone who's gone and with the one who's tasked to do the arrest, uh, is stuck in traffic. So PC Coops, who's part of that surveillance team, effectively gets sent to go and make the arrest, goes and makes the arrest, and the case really starts from there. Okay, Let, let's, let's just pause there quickly and yes. remind people watching this video that in order for an arrest to be lawful, the person who physically says, I am arresting you, has to have what's known as a reasonable suspicion that the person may be guilty of an offence. So what we're talking about here is that Jenkins has all knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, and as it comes out in the case, as I understand it, the judge took the view that had Jenkins not been stuck in traffic and had she been the one that yes. arrived at the scene and actually arrested um, Mr Barrymore, then the arrest would have been lawful. Yes, so they do actually look at, like you said, they do look at if Jenkins had come, would it have been a, would it have been a lawful arrest or not? And, and 
they rule, although it's not exactly a ruling because they're not deciding that issue, but they, mm. they, they reckon on balance, DC Jenkins would have been able to make a lawful arrest. And so it's this reason which becomes relevant because um, Michael Parker, Michael Barrymore, he then sues Essex Police after, so there's no charge, he, he's, you know, no further action. He then sues Essex Police for unlawful arrest um, and matters proceed. They, they, he issues it into court, a particular claim is done. Uh, Essex Police do a defence and they deny liability, but it's much later on in the case that they make an application to amend their defence and they say, fine, we accept this arrest by PC Coots was unlawful, Yeah. but, and this is where it comes down to it, we think he's only entitled to nominal damages because had PC Coots not done the arrest, he, Michael Barrymore could have been arrested by DC Jenkins lawfully. And so in our view, or at least not my view, but in Essex Police's view, it attracts nominal damages only. Mm. So again, let, let's let's pause there yes. briefly and just just make sure that anyone watching this is is very clear. As a matter of law, the person actually making the arrest has to have it in their mind at the time, yes, or has to have a reasonable belief in their mind at the time that the person may be guilty of an offence. Yes, and on the facts of this case, the court found that Coots did not have that requisite precise belief because he did not know what. Jenkins knew, yes, and Jenkins did not. hadn't told him what exactly. she knew, um, and therefore the actual actions of Coots were unlawful because he didn't actually have in his mind at the time the requisite knowledge yes. and belief that um, Barrymore might have been guilty of an offence. And so the case looked at, so Essex were trying to say, well, it doesn't really matter, does it? Yes. Because although Coots did it, and yeah, okay, it was unlawful, had Jenkins not been stuck stuck in traffic, she could, and could is really important, isn't yes. it here, could have affected a, a, a lawful arrest, and therefore any damages that he, he gets should be nominal. Yes. But the court quite rightly said that could is not the right test, know. is it? No. The right test is the but-for test. In other words, yes. had it not happened, not we, we then go on to look at what would have happened, not exactly. what could have happened. The, the, the words they use, they, they talk about the idea of being, uh, or what's the counterfactual situation, i.e. factual being what did happen, counterfactual being what would have happened, mm. and would rather than could, had PC Coots not done the arrest. So what did the court say here about what would have happened had Coots not done it? So PC Coots is not by himself, he's in a team, and so what the court effectively says is had PC Coots not done the arrest, it would have been one of his other team members who would have done it. Not DC Jenkins. DC Jenkins still stuck in traffic, mm. probably sixth in line. No, it's not royalty, but but effectively almost something like sixth in line to do the arrest. You've got PC Coots, then potentially one or three other team members who yeah. would have done the arrest as well. Which means Barrymore could and be. And they also lacked the requisite knowledge. Well, exactly. So and so belief. There's at least four people before DC Jenkins who could, who would have made. An unlawful arrest and so if PC Coots doesn't do it someone else does and it would have still been unlawful is, is the point that ultimately it gets to and this is taken from this looks at an older case called O'Hara versus um, it's, a, it's an Irish case or a Northern Ireland case and effectively that that situation it is an officer arresting another individual on the basis of a briefing that they've had and the key 
And similarly, the key here, which is about DC Jenkins, is the arresting officer doesn't need to have necessarily seen the source material. So, for example, DC Jenkins, the one who could have made the unlawful arrest, hasn't necessarily seen all the, the details. DC Thomas was the main case officer. Um, she's the, uh, DC Thomas is the one who's put the arrest plan together. But then, as long as DC Thomas has explained to DC Jenkins effectively what they found, DC Jenkins is allowed to, or is entitled to rely on what DC Thomas has told her. Mm. Now, the issue here is with PC Coots, the way perhaps they could have got round it um, is, or not round it, rather the way they could have evidenced some um, sh- or some sort of demonstration. Some transfer of that yeah. knowledge and belief, yeah. Exactly, would be if PC Coots telephones DC Jenkins, now I'm not advocating using a mobile in your, your car, but a conversation takes place Five minutes, perhaps, yeah, yeah. and DC Jenkins. You know, there would be a separate argument as to whether five minutes of conversation would be enough. But bearing in mind it's a low threshold for reasonable suspicion, it's possible. But if PC Coots phones DC Jenkins, DC Jenkins gives over enough information, and then PC Coots then goes and does the arrest. That shows that the officers on scene have thought about this, what we call the O'Hara principle, yeah. the idea of transferred reasonable suspicion. There's none of that. And Essex police do try and argue that it's implicit one of our officers would, of course, have modified their behaviour to have taken into account O'Hara. And the court was not having that. The court was not having, we can assume automatically all officers will modify their behaviour naturally to take... Take, to take account of this principle because it's, it's nonsense. Yeah. Um, I mean, if, if you look at this from one point of view, somebody watching this video might think, oh, you know, this is, this is real, really fine lines. This is really splitting is. hairs. But do you know what? It really isn't because the, the requirement for reasonable suspicion is there to ensure that the officer that actually deprives an individual of their liberty... Yeah genuinely believes that he has a reason to do so but also that he exercises that he or she exercises their discretion to do so yes. because you can get quite a lot of cases where a police officer um, sees all the evidence regarding an assault or, or what it, whatever it might be physically goes to the house to with the with the clear intention of arresting somebody and on and on some rare occasions they can actually change their mind because they have in their mind what, what evidence... Well, it's discretion, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, a, a classic example might be um, some degree of identification. Mm. They might, so some of the evidence they might have seen might, might be identifying someone physically as having committed an offence. They believe that this is Mr Smith. They go to Mr Smith's house. Mr Smith opens the door and they can immediately see that some identifying mark or, or on, on them is, 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 is present or is missing. And they have to rethink the evidence. Yes. Because what they've been told and what they're seeing before them doesn't could, match. Could conflict. Yes. So you can't have a situation, um, you, you certainly can't have a fair situation where police officers go into a situation where, where they intend to or believe they should be arresting somebody, not having any idea what the evidence is. Um, because that then robs them of the ability to reassess that, that information as at the time and decide whether or not it is still right to to arrest. And it's also, like you're saying, it's about individual responsibility for officers. Yeah. Because, yes, you've got the collective police force. You sue Essex Police as a 
collective or the chief constable of Essex Police, but you've still got the individual officers who are still responsible for their for their actions. Arresting someone is not a collective thing. You don't arrest as a sort of group of officers. You arrest as a single officer, yeah. and it does put, you know, I say a burden, but then it's a burden that should exist on them to ensure that they are satisfied themselves as to, as you said, reasonable suspicion yeah. and necessity. Yeah. Now, if, if that means a five-minute phone call to solve that situation, yeah. then that's what should happen. I mean, as you said, the, the, the threshold that they need to get to in order to justify the arrest um, is, is not great. Yeah. I mean, many, many cases, many, many judges have, have made that clear over the years. So the, the officer is not in any great jeopardy no. in terms of being open to criticism for, for arrest, or, albeit that that does happen, of course, in cases. But it is still fundamental for the protection of people's liberty and people's freedoms that they, are, that they have to go through this process and that the person who actually says you're arrested does genuinely believe it. Yep. And, and a few features about this case which are relevant as well to perhaps how the judge was thinking, and I don't think it would change the judge's decision either way, but Michael Barrymore up until this point had been perfectly compliant with the police since day one. He'd always... He'd been cooperating yes, with the Yes, he'd always been cooperating. Yeah. cooperating. So there's no, um, there's no argument that the police could make that he's going to run away and disappear. It's just There was no evidence to show that that's happened historically since day one. So to that extent, the, the, you know, the urgency of the situation was less than perhaps they could make out. And of course, perhaps urgency may be a, a way to try and justify it in certain situations where you simply say, you know... If he sees undercover officers or surveillance officers, he does a runner and there you are, you've lost your opportunity. This isn't that situation. So that type of argument couldn't even really hold any weight and really didn't go anywhere from the, from the beginning. Um, but that certainly makes a difference. Now that's where, um, so we've got this transfer to reasonable suspicion. The Essex police do eventually agree that point, agree that PC coups unlawful arrest and what would have happened someone else in that same surveillance team would have arrested uh, Michael Barrymore and it still would have been an unlawful arrest so the lack of a plan B for DC Jenkins this is where the normal damages bit comes in now Essex police have already accepted liability normally with once the liability is accepted you move on to quantum you know what's it worth value yeah. uh, and Michael Barrymore was asking for a lot of special damages within the context of his his job uh, special damages being financial losses and exactly things like that yeah. exactly and so Essex police were completely rejecting that saying uh, you know it just wouldn't have happened now this is where uh, you get uh, previous cases, one called Lumbar uh, and another one which we, we know very well called Bostridge uh, in mental health cases where actually despite that um, situation of, of an unlawful detention you only get a pound effectively and so here uh, the judge does rule in favour of Michael Barrymore and I think rightly uh, because of that situation where they cannot show DC Jenkins was next in line in a situation for an arrest. Bostridge, slightly different because, of course, you're dealing normally with sort of administrative errors and, and it's the idea that potentially, certainly in Bostridge situation, that's where someone was sectioned under the Mental Health Act. It's slightly different. It involves community treatment order there, but which is uh, community orders. But 
the point being in that case the person did go through tribunal procedures and it was deemed that they were unwell let's say uh, to the extent that tribunals hadn't discharged them uh, and so really uh, in Bostridge they were saying the individual suffered no loss as a consequence of it um, whereas here clearly he's arguing I've suffered loss from the unlawful arrest uh, and the judges accepted that uh, and I think it's important because this is the first time that nominal damages have been dealt with in an arrest situation because normally certainly as practitioners most of the time you've got section 24 of the police and criminal evidence act that's what sets out reasonable suspicion and necessity as you said at the beginning uh, and normally it's a question of reasonable suspicion great we can challenge that necessity great we can challenge that fantastic case closed not literally but the idea is once we've got those sorts of things we you sort of assume the rest the period of detention yeah. absolutely and and so i think it just it just reminds us to perhaps even in perhaps cases that seem obvious where it wouldn't apply just to make sure we have thought about that point in advance um because you don't know when it might come up and if you thought about it in advance you can plan for it and that's not a problem yeah, you, I mean, in a letter before claim you could probably preempt it if you know that they're yes. going to try and try and raise it yeah just uh, one miscellaneous point really about this case and this is partly about us as practitioners as well um the and i'm not going to go through it all because it takes a long time but the actual arrest plan itself the judge goes through each element of the arrest plan and one thing that flags up is the sort of history of previous allegations and I mention this because it is relevant to to our clients where um, certain parts of the arrest plan where they're saying this is why we suspect him there weren't a problem but when it came to previous allegations there was quite heavy description about people who would who would accuse Michael Barrymore of committing certain offences in the past I think one of them uh, in one situation had been alleged that he'd raped someone in in uh, sort of a nightclub uh, and it was found to be totally false you know they'd looked at CCTV had been investigated quite thoroughly mm. and it was just clearly far from the truth and so the point is the judge raises that the way they'd written it in the arrest plan and the way it was being purported was very misleading to make it as if the person already has form or bad character and actually they don't because at the end of the day if they've, if they've certain at that time that it was just a completely made up story I'm not sure it really has a place in the arrest plan at all because it doesn't show anything no that that would go to the question of reasonable suspicion is a two-part test isn't it you've yeah. got the subjective reasonable suspicion in other words what did the officer actually believe inside his head but after the event you're allowed to actually um, second guess that officer and look at it objectively so yeah. step back and look at look at what they did ob honestly and subjectively believe and then apply some scrutiny to that to say well okay you believed it but should you have believed it exactly um, so obviously bad uh, character evidence yeah so if, if if part of their subjective suspicion involved uh, what would on on the face of it have appeared to have been evidence of bad character um, then that might when viewed after the event objectively call into question the reasonableness of their of their suspicion that they held, yeah. so it, it seems to be that the judge was has, you know has been flagging that up as as an issue of concern. Yeah. Um, but it shows you know from a practitioner's point of view, it shows it's really important to you know if there is an arrest plan and there isn't always, no. um, but there obviously was in this because they they knew it would be high profile and potentially open to challenge. Yeah. Um, 
uh, then you know if there is an arrest plan firstly find out if there is one uh, and if there is obviously get hold of it and look at it because it, it might help you better understand the the mindset that they attended um, the arrest scenario with and it might help us uh, you know challenge that if there are grounds to do so yeah exactly and that's uh, naturally all practitioners do that anyway which is looking at the reasons for the arrest in the first place and, and challenging those reasons um, it's just a lot more stark here because like you said yeah you've got a clear arrest plan obviously a lot of arrests for example are usually done fairly quickly after the report whereas this is slightly unique situation with it happening somewhat some many years later but but it's just about being able to scrutinize exactly what the police are claiming to have thought beforehand and if some of those are just irrational or just unreasonable then that's certainly a line of challenge that can be taken up um, because let's say in this case the bad character evidence it was really nonsensical and, and I think the judge actually calls it misleading for it to have been there because naturally as part of a briefing the peop- the officers who are sort of listening to that briefing don't get to see the source material they only hear the allegations mm. and they don't necessarily know that actually the, the allegations are largely spurious um, unless you can show perhaps as officers that they did quite clearly show some balance when they gave that briefing to say look these are the allegations but here's all the caveats and I think the arrest plan didn't have any of those caveats in there or at least not enough of it to show a genuine balance for it not to be misleading to other people who hear it. Mm. But I mean even had those allegations against him previously been entirely credible it still wouldn't have made any difference to whether or not on the date in question he had anything to do with of course. With, with the death of, death of somebody else in his swimming pool. Oh, well, just, just as it wouldn't necessarily have any relevance in, in, in a court scenario. No, of course. So um, I think for all those reasons, you know, something of concern. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But it's an interesting case. Yes. Um, hopefully anyone watching this has found our discussion of the issues coming out of the Parker case interesting. Uh, we have some other In Conversation videos on this site. Um, feel free to watch those. You might also find them helpful. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.